Hello and welcome to this special Platinum Jubilee edition of the Backtracker History Show, celebrating Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II's ascension to the throne. We're celebrating it this year because she actually ascended on the death of her father in February 1952, but her coronation was the following year, on June the 2nd. So this show is mainly about the coronation and the Queen, as that has more pomp and ceremony than talking about the death of her father, who passed away in his sleep. Today's show is all about Queen Elizabeth II's ascending to the throne in 1952. But what else happened that year? Well, on the 6th of February, King George IV died at Sandringham House, aged 56, early in the morning. It's revealed that he'd been suffering from lung cancer. He was succeeded by his 25-year-old daughter, Princess Elizabeth, Duchess of Edinburgh, who ascends to the throne as Queen Elizabeth II. The new queen was on a visit to Kenya at the time of her father's death and returned to London the following day. The 15th of February saw the funeral of King George IV taking place at St George's Chapel, Windsor Castle. His body had been lying in state in Westminster Hall since the 11th of February. On the 2nd of May, the de Havilland Comet became the world's first jet airliner with a maiden flight from London to Johannesburg. On the 5th of July, the last of the original trams ran in London and the citizens of London turned out in force to say farewell. The 19th of September saw the English film star Charlie Chaplin sailing to the United Kingdom with his family for the premiere of his film Limelight, which was to be held in London on the 16th of October. He's told that he will be refused re-entry to the United States until he has been investigated by the US Immigration Service. He chooses to remain in Europe. On the 29th of November, the first General Post Office pillar box of the reign of Queen Elizabeth II is erected in Scotland on the Inch Housing Estate in Edinburgh, and it's promptly attacked in protest at its bearing the royal cipher of Elizabeth II, considered historically incorrect in Scotland. And the 25th of December saw the Queen making her first Christmas speech to the Commonwealth. But our event happened at Westminster Abbey in London, when Elizabeth II acceded to the throne at the age of 25 upon the death of her father, George IV, on the 6th of February 1952. She was proclaimed Queen by her Privy and Executive Councils shortly afterwards. She was actually in Kenya when she found out about her father's death and became the first sovereign in over 200 years to accede while abroad. Word of the Week And for this week's word, I give you... Troubadour. These were custodians of art in the Middle Ages and they composed poetry and love songs focused on the fragility of women and the love they deserve. These poets moved from place to place. Westminster Abbey has been the setting for every coronation since 1066. Before the Abbey was built, coronations were carried out wherever it was convenient. 
taking place in Bath, Oxford and Canterbury. The coronation service used for Queen Elizabeth II descends directly from that of King Edgar at Bath in 973. The original 14th century order of service was written in Latin and was used until the coronation of Elizabeth I. The service fell into six parts. The recognition, the oath, the anointing, the investiture, which includes the crowning, the enthronement and the homage. The recipe for the anointing oil contains oils of orange, roses, cinnamon, musk and ambergris. Usually a batch is made to last a few coronations, but in May 1941, a bomb hit the deanery, destroying the file. So, a new batch was made. Queen Elizabeth II is the sixth queen to have been crowned in Westminster Abbey in her own right. The first was Queen Mary I, who was crowned on the 1st of October, 1553. The queen's grandmother, Queen Mary, aged 81, was the first queen to see a grandchild ascend to the throne. However, she died before the coronation took place. Prince Charles was the first child to witness his mother's coronation as sovereign. He received a special hand-painted children's invitation to his mother's coronation. Alas, Princess Anne did not attend the ceremony as she was considered too young. And now it's time to talk about flowers, particularly the ones in the coronation bouquet, which was made up of white flowers, mainly orchids and lilies of the valley from England, stephanotis from Scotland, orchids from Wales, and carnations from Northern Ireland and the Isle of Man. And as for the coronation dress, well, that was designed by British fashion designer Norman Hartnell and was made of white satin and embroidered with the emblems of the United Kingdom and the Commonwealth in gold and silver thread. Since the coronation, the Queen has worn the coronation dress six times, including the opening of Parliament in New Zealand and Australia in 1954. She also wore the coronation ring, known as the Wedding Ring of England, which was placed on the Queen's fourth finger of her right hand in accordance with tradition. Made for the coronation of King William IV in 1831, the ring has been worn at every coronation since, except for Queen Victoria, whose fingers were so small that another one had to be made specially for her because the original couldn't be shrunk down in size enough. Let's not forget the Duke of Edinburgh, who wore his full-dress naval uniform for the journey to and from the Abbey. While in the Abbey, he wore a coronet and his Duke's robes over his uniform. There are many reasons why the coronation was a game-changer historically, and one is about something we take for granted nowadays, television. Because the broadcasting of the coronation did more than any other event to make television a mainstream medium. It was the first instance of a transmission outnumbering radio audiences with more than 20 million people watching the service on television. The BBC had an inkling that it might be popular based on the reaction to the limited broadcast of George IV's coronation procession, but even they were amazed at this historic event that would mark the coming of age of television, as well as the modernisation of the monarchy. This was a time when televisions were a luxury, so not many people had them. 
But the nation was still brought together as 10.4 million people watched in the homes of friends and neighbours and 1.5 million watched in public places like pubs and cinemas. The BBC coverage of the event included cameras installed inside Westminster Abbey for the first time to show the coronation service. The Queen gave her permission for this departure against official advice, revealing the monarchy's willingness to move with the times. Television commentary in the Abbey was provided by Richard Dimbleby, with seven other commentators, including Bernard Braden and Brian Johnston, who provided coverage along the processional route. The BBC's coronation coverage was broadcast around the world. In the United States, 85 million people watched recordings of the highlights, while in Germany, all 11 hours of coverage were transmitted. And reaction to the broadcasts was overwhelmingly positive. With competition from ITV only three years away, the BBC established an early lead as a trusted and reliable broadcaster of national events. The coronation, when you delve into it, has so many incredible facts. For example, among the many foreign journalists was Jacqueline Bouvier, who was working for the Washington Times Herald at the time. And if you recognize her name, it's because later she'd become the first lady of the United States of America, Jackie Kennedy. Another interesting fact, the Ministry of Food granted 82 applications for people to roast oxen if they could prove that, by tradition, an ox had been roasted at previous coronations. This was a very welcome concession at the time because the meat ration was just two shillings a week. And another food-related fact, coronation chicken was invented for the foreign guests who were to be entertained after the coronation. The food had to be prepared in advance and florist Constance Spry proposed a recipe of cold chicken in a curry cream sauce with a well-seasoned dressed salad of rice, green peas and mixed herbs. Constance Spry's recipe won the approval of the Minister of Works and has since been known as Coronation Chicken. (laughs) Word on the street. There's a bit of mystery surrounding why this one was named. It's Ketch Road. A ketch is either a two-masted sailing vessel or an item for a hangman, neither of which seems like a good reason for the naming of this road, although many executions had taken place at Cumberland Road Jail. One famous hangman with the name of Ketch was himself hanged after murdering a woman in London. And now for some more facts about the coronation which occurred 70 years ago this month. The Queen appeared with her family on the balcony of Buckingham Palace, still wearing the imperial state crown and the royal robes to greet the cheering crowds. Her Majesty appeared again on the balcony at 9.45 in the evening to turn on the lights of London. Lights 
cascaded down the Mall, lighting the huge cipher on Admiralty Arch and turning the fountains in Trafalgar Square into liquid silver until all the floodlights from the National Gallery to the Tower of London had been illuminated. The actual coronation occurred on the 2nd of June 1953, and on exactly the same day, the world found out that Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay had made it to the summit of Mount Everest. The Queen then presented the 14 members of the expedition with a special edition coronation medal, with the extra wording, Mount Everest Expedition. And as for the national anthem, God Save the Queen, it was first publicly performed in London in 1745 to support King George II after he was defeated in a battle with the Jacobean uprising that started that year. The song was used to boost morale and the forces loyal to George II would go on to defeat the Jacobites the following year. The song came to be referred to as the national anthem from the beginning of the 19th century. today. During a wedding ceremony, the elderly wife in church turned to her husband and said, I've just done a silent fart, what should I do? The husband was heard to reply, change the batteries in your hearing aid. Here's a lovely story about the Queen. On a recent low-key trip to Scotland, she met some American tourists whilst walking. When the tourists asked if she lived locally, she mentioned that she had a house nearby. And when asked if she'd ever met the Queen, she simply pointed at her security and said, No, but he has. Also, another little tidbit fact for you, the Queen is the only one to be able to drive in the country without a driver's licence. And apparently she still does. Here are a few interesting facts about Queen Elizabeth II. Her Majesty is well known for her love of the corgi dog and she's owned more than 30 in her reign, most of which have been descended from her first corgi, Susan, who was gifted to her on her 18th birthday in 1944. She even invented a new breed of dog when her corgi mated with a dash hound belonging to her sister, Princess Margaret, creating the doggy. During her reign, the Queen has been served by 14 Prime Ministers of the United Kingdom. Her first Prime Minister was Winston Churchill, who became a Member of Parliament during the reign of the Queen's great-great-grandmother, Queen Victoria. And in September 1966, Her Majesty visited the British Aircraft Corporation's facilities in Filton, Bristol, and inspected the progress of the Concorde project. Her Majesty first flew in Concorde in 1977 and went on to use it for several overseas tours before it was retired in 2003. Now, the Queen currently lives at Windsor Castle and that's her main residence. It's the oldest and largest occupied palace in the world. And lastly, the Queen has sat for over 200 official portraits during her reign. The first was in 1933, when she was just seven years old, and was a portrait painted by Anglo-Hungarian artist Philip Alexius de Laszlo. 
And now we have a podcast bonus. The last princes of Gwynedd. This was the royal line of Wales, and they were imprisoned for life in Bristol Castle after Edward I's conquest of Wales and execution of their father, Daffid III, in 1283. Daffid III was executed by hanging in Shrewsbury for treason. His body was dismembered, and he suffered the same fate as his brother, Llewellyn II, with his head put on a pole for display at the Tower of London. The bard Bledin Farad made this eulogy. Frau's lion dead. Horror harries us nation's shield, since Christ's death no blow more bitter. Like Ben Digifran, like Arthur, woe with his loss and fear, his sword bloody. The world's wretched, stolen's our lord. Unstinting host, De Hibarth's defender, generous, now gone. In battle, there'd be spoils before stopping, no counting his crew so many marching. A wall against sea, Arthur's equal, mighty chieftain, strife red, fire bright blazing. Great grief over Wales, calamity and terror, who doubts it, those already downcast. Man's misfortune, Llewellyn not living, longing in my heart. Heal it, Lord, else no hope. This anguish make us weep, our leader taken, disaster to our land, proud door broken. Guard him well, God, let him go to you in saint light to heaven's hall, the Lion of Abafror. Another royal tale for this area concerns Thornbury Castle, which was originally conceived and constructed by Edward Stafford, the third Duke of Buckingham, the only man to rival the king in wealth and status at that time. It was a display of wealth and ambition that Henry VIII did not take kindly to. Thornbury is just north of Bristol, and in 1520, the third Duke of Buckingham, Edward Stafford, became suspected of potentially treasonous actions, and Henry VIII authorised an investigation. The king personally examined witnesses against him, gathering enough evidence for a trial. The Duke was finally summoned to court in April 1521 and arrested and placed in the tower. He was tried before a panel of 17 peers, being accused of listening to prophecies of the king's death and intending to kill the king. Edward was executed on Tower Hill on the 17th of May, 1521, and posthumously, by Act of Parliament on the 31st of July, 1523, gained everything Edward had owned, disinheriting most of his wealth from his children. Sir Thomas More complained that the key evidence was hearsay from servants who, as commoners, were threatened and tortured to extract false confessions. Following his death, Thornbury was confiscated by King Henry VIII of England, 
who stayed there for ten days in August 1535 with Queen Anne Boleyn. In 1554, Queen Mary granted the castle and manor to Henry Stafford, first Baron Stafford, following the Civil War. The castle fell into disrepair but was renovated in 1824 by the Howard family. The History of North America podcast is a sweeping historical saga of the United States, Canada, and Mexico from their deep origins to our present epoch. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this exciting, fascinating, epic journey through time, focusing on the compelling, wonderful, and tragic stories of North America's inhabitants, heroes, villains, leaders, environment, and geography. This incredible historical adventure follows a path of exciting events led by interesting people who reach beyond their grasp to touch key moments in time. The History of North America podcast series is an educational and entertaining look at the thrilling chronicle of North America, an action-packed tale of a continent that is still unfolding. I invite you to come along for the ride. Back in the day facts. Here's some facts from 1952. Did you know that the popular Mr. Potato Head first went on sale that year? If you're not sure, Mr. Potato Head is an American toy consisting of a plastic model of a potato head and you stick a variety of plastic parts onto it like eyes, ears, nose, shoes, hats, that sort of thing. It was invented and manufactured by George Lerner in 1949, but was first distributed by Hasbro. And it also has the honour of being the first toy advertised on television. 1952 saw the Great Smog of London, a period of unusually cold weather combined with an anticyclone and windless conditions collected airborne pollutants mostly arising from the use of coal, to form a thick layer of smog over the city. It lasted from Friday the 5th of December to Tuesday the 9th of December, and then dispersed quickly when the weather changed. The smog caused major disruption by reducing visibility and even penetrating indoor areas, far more severely than previous smog events, called P-supers. Government reports estimated that up to 4,000 people had died as a direct result of the smog, and 100,000 more were made ill by the smog's effects on the human respiratory tract. More recent research suggests that the total number of fatalities may have been considerably higher, with estimates of between 10,000 and 12,000 deaths. Meanwhile, 3,300 people die of polio in the U.S., 57,000 children are paralysed prior to the widespread use of the polio vaccine. In India, Mother Teresa opens the home for the dying and destitute in Calcutta. Also this year, The Diary of a Young Girl, also known as The Diary of Anne Frank, was published. 
This is a book of writings from the Dutch language diary kept by Anne Frank while she was in hiding for two years with her family during the Nazi occupation of the Netherlands. The family was apprehended in 1944 and Anne Frank died of typhus in the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp in 1945. She was 15 years old. The final entry in her diary is dated August the 1st, 1944, the same year she decided to rewrite it in the form of a novel, which she intended to publish after the war. And lastly, the film Singing in the Rain is released in September of this year. Starring Gene Kelly, Stanley Donnan and Debbie Reynolds, it offers a light-hearted depiction of Hollywood in the late 1920s, with the three stars portraying performers caught up in the transition from silent films to talkies. You have been listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. Now, this podcast has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. If you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. If you didn't, well, let's just leave it at that, shall we? I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me via Twitter or Facebook using at UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. Or, alternatively, you can email me at info at backtracker.co.uk By the way, the tune in the background? That's by The Model Folk. You can find out more about them at themodelfolk.com So thank you so much for listening, and until next time guys, take care, and look after each other. <laughs>